You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. I'm Matthew Lopez, and this is The Fabulous Invalid. Welcome to The Fabulous Invalid, Broadway's podcast where we present essential conversations with a curated roster of the best, most important, and innovative theater makers working today, from actors to writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. We took our name from the title of a 1938 play by Kaufman and Hart that has since become a loving nickname for Broadway itself, always deemed on the verge of decline, yet always bouncing back, The Fabulous Invalid. I'm theater savant Jamie Dumont. And I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with Stage Left.NYC and Stage Left, the podcast, which is currently on hiatus, but we do have five wonderful episodes you can check out on the Broadway Podcast Network website. That's true. Well, hi, Rob. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. Very, very well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm so excited because this week we're finally sharing an interview that we did back in March uh, before the pandemic, before the world sort of turned upside down. Um, and we had been saving it because we wanted to share it uh, sort of during the Tony season. But unfortunately, very sadly, tragically, there will be no Tony season this year, or at least not in, in May and June when it typically is. But we're going to celebrate the inheritance anyway. Yes, yes. So we sat down with playwright Matthew Lopez back in March before the show uh, was slated to close. Uh, And if you don't know, uh, Matthew's work includes the plays The Whipping Man, Somewhere, Reverberation, The Legend of Georgia McBride, which I loved, and of course, this season's The Inheritance, which had premiered at the Young Vic in London back in 2018, transferred to the West End, and then came to Broadway, where uh, it ran from November to March. Oh, I'm so excited for this interview. I know, I know. Well, for those who missed it, uh, since it is now closed, The Inheritance is a loosely adapted modern telling of E.M. Forster's novel Howard's End, set among a group of gay men living in New York, uh, contending with the legacy of the AIDS crisis, and confronting questions of identity, community, history, and responsibility to each other. To put our cards out on the table, I think I can speak for you, Jamie. We both loved this play. Um, it was on my top 10 of the year, but it was also on my top 10 of the decade when we did that episode um, back at the beginning of the year. I think it was on mine too, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I think we, 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 we both had in. Both our it. lists. Exactly, yes. And it's funny, you know, I, I think I've shared this before, but when I saw it first in London, um, I walked out of the theater and I immediately wanted to read it. And that's very rare for me. I, I'm one of those people who is, you know, sort of doesn't like to read plays. I'd rather see a play because they're meant to be uh, seen and performed. Um, but I had this, this like sort of immediate need to want to read it. And I think I texted you, Jamie. You texted me, I think, a few times yeah. during, during the play. Yeah. And then you texted me afterwards that you had bought the book and you were going to yeah. read it that night. And then the following morning, I believe you spent most of the night up <laughs> reading the play. I did. I did. Well, I, I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but it is, it's a two-part play. So there's almost you know, more than six and a half hours worth of play to consume. So yeah. uh, you know, there was, it was a lot of reading that night. It's um, a big watch and a big read. Exactly. But you know what? I saw it several times, you know, from London to Broadway, and um, I, I would see it again in a heartbeat because the characters that Matthew created were so, so incredible. I just wanted to spend time with them. Uh, it was a really gorgeous work. I agree with that, and I would also say, as somebody who read the play myself for prepping to interview Matthew, it's a great read. It's a fantastic, yes. fantastic play to read. So that's another way you can you can enjoy it if for some reason you didn't get to see it or there isn't a production in your neighborhood sometime right. soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, as I mentioned, the play, you know, the play was always sort of slated to close in March, but it had to close a couple of days early because Broadway was shut down on March 11th. So that ended up being their last performance. And, uh, you know, they didn't know it at the time, which has got to be rough, but uh, Matthew, actually, in the in the month since, he just recently shared a piece in Vogue reflecting on that experience and the fact that the show had closed right up, you know, about the time of this pandemic. And of course, it is a play that that deals with another, um, you know, sort of global health crisis that, um, you know, affected the city and the theater community and, um, you know, still reverberates today. But there's something really poignant that he shared that I thought I would, I would read here and then we can get on to the interview. Um, at the end of his piece, sort of reflecting on, you know, what will theater look like when we come back from this crisis. He wrote, people will gather once again to tell and be told stories. 
It is a fundamental part of human nature. We tell one another stories so that we will not feel alone in the world. We tell one another stories to validate our own experiences, to hear the sounds of recognition in the audience. We tell one another stories because it is through telling stories that we were able to say, I lived through this. This is what happened to me. I think it's a perfect example of why theater will come back because what is theater? It's the fabulous invalid. Yep, absolutely. All righty, so let's get to our interview. Let's. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Oh, we're delighted. Um, this season, your play, The Inheritance, uh, came to Broadway following a smash success across the pond. Uh, it closed in March, but it is the longest-running new play of the season. Yes, uh, 138 so performances, which is very like exciting. that number. That's excellent. <laughs> well, right off the bat, I think Jamie and I want to say that we both loved it. Thank you. Uh, we both love, love, loved it. I think when I when I saw you, I told you I'd seen it four times. <laughs> um, and we were both struck, though, in particular. You've seen it more than my mother. <laughs> and she loves it. There you go. <laughs> uh, well, we were both struck in particular um, by the way that the play dramatizes intergenerational relationships among gay men, which is something that we don't really see a lot in media. Um, so to kick us off, we were wondering what inspired you to craft a story that in part... Um, touches on this dynamic of gay men from different generations being friends and uh, romantically linked as well. Well, it really started with the novel that I adapted, Howard's End, uh, for this play. Um, I was so in love with that novel and, and the film as a teenager, and it has stayed with me all my life. And I was in Central Park rereading it for the hundredth time, <laughs> and there was just this bolt of inspiration, and I I knew in that instant that I could take these families from the novel, from three social classes, and retell it uh, using uh, gay men from three different generations. It was sort of, a, I mean, funny, for uh, for as long as I've worked on the play and for as much um, sort of blood, sweat, and tears has gone into its creation, the inception was incredibly fast and mm. almost instantaneous in terms of the, the big picture idea. And so um, I think I had the idea before I understood what the idea meant. And it must have been, looking back at it, it must have been something that I was really thinking about uh, and without realizing that that was as weighing as heavily on my mind as it must have been in order to sort of have that quick lightning flash uh, moment. And uh, I think that, you know, I've always felt that as a, as a, as a gay man who was born in 1977, uh, alive during the epidemic, but not old enough to be directly in, imperiled by it. Um, I, I feel like m- my life and my generation's life feels like we've sort of straddled uh, two very, very um, important parts of 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 gay men, gay male culture, which is, of course, um, post Stonewall years leading into the the epidemic. Uh, and then this this period that we are now in, and uh, I've always felt that my generation is a kind of a witness generation. You know, we did not we witnessed the the events uh, in the eighties and the early nineties. We we did not directly uh, participate in them. were impacted by them, and then we became adults, and our lives became settled in, as adults, and we, we entered our thirties, and for some of us entered our forties, <laughs> and now there's a new world that I'm watching this next generation of, of, of the queer community um, uh, sort of run with, and, and, and this explosion of, of openness, of, of, of redefining uh, who we are and who we are in the world. And again, in some ways, as someone in his early 40s, I'm, I'm witnessing that as well. And so mm. I think that for me and my generation, our, our lot in life as a generation perhaps is, is to have watched these two things. Um, and I think that for me as a representative of my generation made its way into the play. Mm. I was talking with um, some folks from my other podcast, Stage Left, where we do reviews, and um, I made the point to them that you know it almost feels like um, you know me. I'm in my early 30s. 
Um, so I'm sort of a decade removed from you know the, the timeline that you're describing. Um, and I, I have to imagine that someone who's just now turning 18 or 20 would see this play in an, in an entirely different way than I do as someone who's 30, as you do as the author, someone who's you know 40. Mm. Um, and and how it's amazing how that that small difference in time can mean so much for the progress of gay men, but also the timeline of this this epidemic. I think that I mean I, as as we've been learning ever since the election of Donald Trump that a lot can happen in this <laughs> in a small period of time, and yeah. the world can change overnight. Mm-hmm. And um, that is anybody who has even a cursory understanding of history knows that that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a general human tendency towards amnesia uh you know there it, it, it everyone every generation believes they invented sex every generation <laughs> believes they invented rebellion um the idea of revolution seems to be have invented by whatever generation uh has come up with the latest one yeah and what even a cursory understanding of history can suggest is there's nothing that we haven't seen before mm. everything um can be understood within a prism, within the perspective of history, within the continuum of history. And I have been in my life just as guilty of it as anyone else. And I think that for me, I've taken great solace in in learning about my history as a gay man, my history as a a member of the LGBTQ community. Uh, my, My history as an American, my history as a Puerto Rican American. I mean, you can, you can slice the pie in so many different ways, uh, but it, what it all comes down to, I think, is, I've, it's, I mean, it's trite, but those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. And as I was writing the play, I saw the election of Donald Trump. I saw a lot of things that to me, uh, in, in, in obvious and in sort of subtle ways, began to feel analogous to the epidemic years it felt analogous to a lot of calamities in world history. And, and I think that, you know, I can't imagine, I can't imagine, I know it's my job as a writer to imagine, but it is very difficult for me to imagine what the world looks like to an 18-year-old right now. And people have asked me, they said, why, why, are, there, why are there only two characters from the younger generation in the play? And... You know, I think there are there are several answers to that. One is as a, it's an, as a question of adaptation, which is the Schlegel sisters became Toby and, and Eric, and mm-hmm. and they are the central characters in the novel. Therefore, those became the central characters in my play. They are the age that I roughly was when I started working on the play. But I can write rather. I hate the word authoritatively, but it's the only word that's coming to mind about my generation. Mm-hmm. I would never speak for everyone, but I can speak to my experience as that member of that generation. And I have copious amounts of research and books and films and plays to help understand the generation that, that came before me. But the generation that has come after me is coming after me. Their story is only starting to be written. Mm. And they are the ones who are going to write it. And I realized quickly as I was starting to work on the play that any attempt on my part to, to do with their generation what I allowed myself to do with mine uh, would be false, would be dishonest, would, would, would just simply be not my place to do. It's not my story to tell. Um, I could take Adam and Leo from the novel. I could use them as a generational um, representation, but I, I, I could never ever uh, speak for them. And I think that if I had, I think the harm I might have done for having done so would be far greater than perhaps uh, the supposed neglect, let's say, that some people think that I have paid their their generation. It's not my place to, to speak for them. Um, what I have said in the past, it's my, it is my responsibility to speak to them. And that what I can share is my perspective as someone my age and my experience who has lived a, a lifetime up to this point. Mm. Well, the play is so poignantly titled alone, uh, The Inheritance, right? And the play itself is an inheritance. 
I think. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's documenting, as you describe, a certain generational experience that has value in, in, in the future, looking ahead. You know, now that, uh, you know, it's had its run in New York, um, there will be other productions. It will live on as text that people study and perform. Um, and it does capture, you know, it's not set anytime. It's set specifically in, you know, 2015, 2016. Um, there's a specific context to the story. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that I've always been struck by, I, I don't know if I thought this or someone said it to me, but I'll take credit for it. Uh, and that is uh, the fact of being gay um, often means, most often means, that you're a minority in your own family which is distinct from being a racial minority uh, in most cases, uh, or an ethnic minority in most cases. Um, and, and so when you grow up in a black family, you, know, you have um, elders to look to who share your, your history, who can, who can speak to you directly through their own lived experience about what it means to be a young black child in America, right? When you are a young gay child, you don't have that same experience. You're, unless, you're adrift. You, exactly. you, you, and not only are you adrift uh, for so many, uh, especially in my generation and the generations before me, you have a secret mm. that um, you, distances you from your loved ones. Uh, Edmund White came to visit with us while we were in rehearsals and the way he put it was uh, we are the only minority group whose family does not belong to the same minority right. that we do. There you go. Mm -hmm. And there are, of course, exceptions to that, but by and large, that, that remains true. And I'm grateful that that is not as true as it once was. Mm -hmm. But we shouldn't kid ourselves. For so many people in the world, it is still true. And, and the world isn't just the United States. The world isn't just the Western world. Um, and there are still many places in the, in the world where it is not just dangerous, it is illegal to be who you are. And... I think that one of the things that for me growing up I took great solace in was representation, was um, access to my kind. Uh, I couldn't get it at home. I couldn't. I mean, I didn't grow up in a home that was in any way hostile to to queer people. My parents were were good and diligent Democrats. They <laughs> they um, they you know they. I grew up receiving a message of of, of acceptance and love. Uh, from my parents from from the beginning, uh, so it was, but it still that wasn't enough because I grew up in a culture that did not do that. It didn't matter what I got at home. Uh, the home, of course, became a very safe place, but only to a point because the world was still very dangerous for me, and I could not be honest uh, with my family because that would mean being honest with myself, and I couldn't take my family everywhere with me. I couldn't bring that safety out into the world. And so I had to live in denial of my of who I was. You know, I, I I have young trans friends who are in their late teens, early twenties, as a result of this play in, in, in some cases, and I'm amazed at at the I probably from my generation, I would look at it and call it bravery. I, I, I suspect they might not. Mm. You know, I think that is even in and of itself, the use of the word bravery is perhaps the difference between mm -hmm. my generation's experience and, the, and, the, and this next generation's experience. I don't know if they would call it bravery. I think they would just simply call it honesty. Mm. Uh, again, I don't want to put words in another generation's <laughs> mouth, but I watch that and, and I see that as a, a, far, a far more impactful uh, redefinition of who you are than even what I went through as a gay man. I just had to come out and say, I like boys. And for so many of my friends, they, they have to look at their family and they say, I am a boy. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is, to me, that to do that at 16, 17, 18 years old is evidence of the fact that the world is changing and the world has changed. And... My fear right now is that uh, that that we that we're in danger of losing uh, that, not by our own actions, but rather by forces beyond our nature. And I think that, for me, bringing it back to the themes of the play, is how I found some solace 
in revisiting for myself what the activism was like around the epidemic. It is, if you want to know how to combat the Trump administration, if you want to know how to combat right-wing governments that are popping up all over this world right now, you have the example of, of, the, of those people on the front lines uh, fighting for their lives. And I, I think that it is very true that we are still fighting for our lives. And it isn't just the queer community anymore. It's a lot of people fighting for their lives. I came out of the closet at the height of the AIDS epidemic. So I came out of the closet in the mid-80s. And I want to say thank you for the play. And thank you specifically for that moment when Henry Wilcox says, there are no gay men my age. Um, that was hugely powerful to me because, you know, there was a whole generation missing, a generation slightly older than mine, but also part of my generation. But I came out at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And the thing I remember about that time specifically is how it felt like, it felt very special to be in the, a part of the gay community at that time. It felt like we knew something about who we were that no one else knew, and it bonded us together. It made us stronger. And I feel that a lot of that is in this play, and it resonates quite clearly. So it's, it's important to look back, as you said, and, and it, I think it informs our future. You know, I think one of my favorite historians um, is Shelby Foote, and he wrote exclusively, almost exclusively, about the Civil War. Mm. And he always contended that American history really began with the Civil War. Everything that, uh, that happened before the Civil War led up to the Civil War. And everything that happened after the Civil War was a result of the Civil War. Mm. And I think an argument could be made that, um, that, that the gay community was forged really in those years. It's what made us a community. It's what forced us to have to out ourselves in many ways and, 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 and speak uh, loudly, uh, because it was a question of our our lives being on the line. Um, again, I was I was too young to be directly affected by it, and and therefore directly involved in it. I look at those years as a student of history, and as someone who knows people who were alive then, and and um, who have told me their stories. And of course, the question that I always ask myself is, what would you have done? What would your reaction have been? Would you have been like, like Henry and Hid? I hope not. I'd like to think not. Would you have been on the front? Would you have been storming the FDA? Uh, would, would you be dead? Um, there are what-ifs that no one can ever really answer. Um, but it is the act of investigation into that question that leads to understanding and compassion. You have to... For history to be any uh, use to us, it cannot just be facts and figures and numbers. It can't be cold. It has to be hot. And the way to make it hot is to make it personal and applicable to our lives today. And, and there's a scene in the end of Act 1, in Part 1, Act 1, we call them Acts 1 through 6. It's, hard, it's easier to do that. So for me, my Act 1 is the proper Act 1. Um, and uh, it's just inheritance nerdery right there. Um, and, you know, when Eric asks Walter, well, he says to Walter, I, I can't imagine what those years were like. I can read about them, but I can't understand how they feel. I mean, that is exactly the words that I, were say, I was saying to myself as I was attempting to work on this play. And uh, the, the thought exercise that Walter asks Eric to engage in is to name one of your friends and imagine them dead and now name another, imagine them dead. And this litany that we end the first act with of names of the dead, names of the infected, names of the disappeared um, was a thought experiment that I had to do with myself as I was beginning to write this play. I literally took out my phone and opened my phone book and I started scrolling through and I would stop on every out gay man I knew. And I would imagine their funeral. I would imagine them in hospital. I had to do that to myself. I had to force myself to imagine. And I tell people, when they, especially younger people, when they come to see the play, do that. Go, go open your phone and, and do that little thought experiment.
the act of compassion, the compassion is not the act of, I think, understanding someone's feelings as much as it is attempting to imagine yourself in their experience. And that is what I forced myself to do with this play. It's the way I, I, I wrote the play. Um, and it's what I hope people take away from the play. And the thing is, is that, you know, in the experience of working on the play over the last two years, I look out at the audience and it is not a homogenous group. And that's so wonderful. Yes, you get a lot of gay men at this play, um, as the bathroom lines attest. Yes. <laughs> um, but you get a lot of everyone at this play and we always have. And there is a communal, no one is immune from history. I think if there's any lesson that could be applicable to this play outside of the gay community, uh, it is that no one is immune from history. And we own our own history, whether we like it or not. And we own each other's history because in a country as diverse and as uh, disparate as ours, if we don't own each other's history, uh, we, we can't build a future together. And it's how we grow and how we learn. If you try to understand the past and you try to, and you try to experience it through whatever lens you can, you're, you're going to learn a great deal about your future. I think so. And it's also very, it's also in some bizarre way for me, very comforting to understand history that you can contextualize the now. You, it is possible to really take comfort from even the worst history in that the worst of today has been seen before and, and oftentimes far worse than we are experiencing it right now, if we are fortunate enough to say that. There is some comfort to be taken into know, in knowing that this has been experienced before by others and others have survived it. And, and these things, you know, when I was once told a story about a friend of mine who was visiting his family, his brother, and they had a, a two-year-old. And the two-year-old um, hurt themselves somehow and, and they were in pain and the screaming that this child emitted was far and away in disproportionate to the pain that the child was caused. And my friend asked his brother, he says, why, what, why, why the histrionics? Why the drama? You know, <laughs> chill out, kid, right? And his brother said, because he's never experienced that kind of pain before and he has no idea if it will ever stop. Mm. He has no idea if he will never not be in pain again because he has no experience of that. He will, in two minutes, not be in pain anymore, and he will learn that. And I think that is applicable to the way we encounter history as well. A lot of people in this world are in pain right now. And there can be some solace in looking at the pain of others and the, the trauma of others and seeing that Somehow, some way, it it was ended uh, by history. It was ended by movements. It was ended, God forbid, in some cases by war. But for the most part, pain and suffering and individual trauma ends. Something that we haven't talked about yet is the production itself, uh, um, yeah. which is was just luminous. Um, and a huge part of it, as you and I have talked about before, uh, was Stephen Daldry, the director, right? Mm -hmm. And the collaboration that you had in sort of conceiving how this play could even happen on stage, right? I was wondering if you could explain um, to us sort of the process of how that development came and um, how you discovered the play on stage. It was really exciting. It never happened with one of my plays in, in this way to the degree that it did with Stephen, which was from the very first workshop, he had from the get-go an idea of how the play might be staged. And, you know, I believe, and I will say to early career playwrights, 
I do believe you have a responsibility to answer the question, how, how do you stage this? Early career playwrights in your earliest plays, I think it behooves you to have an answer to that question. You need to help them help you get this thing produced. And the easiest way, not the easiest way, but the most effective way to make sure a play can be produced is to make sure that it is producible. Right. <laughs> and so you do need to sort of have an eye on practicalities. Right. Are you talking about as you're writing it and as you're developing yeah, it? Like, as the author, you need to author, think yeah. about... There's a cast of 50 and it takes place on the moon. Right, but also, and, you know, like, it takes on the moon and in my head and right. like another in another, another world. Moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, but, it, also how it, but, but, also, but also how it's, it's um, not, only, not only the cast, but the physical production as well. Like yeah. that, these are I think all you need to be able to answer to... that question early on in your career. I had to. I, I, you know, Whipping Man, I knew. One set, three people... Uh, at least the sound of rain, if not the presence of rain, depending on the budget. Um, <laughs> you know, an amputation. Figure out how to do that. Right. Like there's a there's there's the. I wrote um, with the intention of of not making it difficult. I did not want to be the reason. It uh, couldn't get produced. It couldn't get produced. Couldn't get produced. Uh, there's yeah. a million other reasons that are out of my control. <laughs> right. That which is within my control, I need. Early on in my career, I wanted to make sure that I didn't screw that up. Uh, but when it came How to the, did you, can I just yeah. interrupt you? How did you have that presence of mind to to think that way? What, did, do, I don't know. I, just, I have a strategic brain. <laughs> I think um, it, it, I don't think a lot of people would think that way. You just think about what it is that, the story you want to tell. As, I'm not a playwright, yeah, so I don't I, know. You know, I think that um, you know, I think that theater is theater is largely about limitations. Theater is always about overcoming limitations. You have mm. limitations of time. You have limitations of budget, most especially. You have limitations of literal space. Um, theater, what makes theater so theater writing so exciting and so challenging um, is that you have to uh, create within certain limitations that you don't have, like, let's say a novelist doesn't possess. A novelist you know, can go anywhere they want to. They can they can go to the moon. They can go to the the, the, <laughs> the inner mind. reaches of the mind. They can go everywhere, and it doesn't matter as long as as there's paper to print it on. And now you know you don't even need that. <laughs> Novelists can do whatever they want. Um, and within to a certain degree, within film as a screenwriter, you get to. It's one of the great things I love about screenwriting is you get to actually kind of you get to go outside. You get to go <laughs> like up here. You get to go there. Oh, let's get on a plane. Okay, let's do that. And then they come back. It's like no, we're not going to pay for a plane. Okay, well, we'll scale that back. So there are some limitations on film, right. but in theater, it is it is all about limitation. The whole thing about theater is how to create within uh, a very strict set of limitations and with inheritance. It was the first time I wrote a play that I just didn't give a shit about the limitations. <laughs> I couldn't. Now, look, there are tons of younger writers than me, earlier career writers than me, who start start out at the beginning of their career not giving a shit. And God love them. More power to them. That's not how I. That's not what I did. Yeah. Um, but with inheritance, I just couldn't be bothered with practicalities because I just wanted to tell the story. And it was the first time I ever gave myself permission to just go nuts and just write, 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 and create and go here, go there, go everywhere. And, you know, there are perhaps most directors in the world might be daunted by that as a first production. And I I was very fortunate that I got Stephen Daldry, and who's unafraid of anything <laughs> and loves a good challenge. As a matter of fact, he's bored by well-made plays and one set things. He's just like, well, you don't need me for that. And and so bringing the play to Stephen and having him uh, become involved allowed me to not worry about practicalities because I've got Stephen Daldry now. <laughs> and um, I was very lucky in that. And in our first workshop, so I wrote the play knowing that I wanted a collection of young men telling the story, figuring out how to tell a story and how to tell their story and using the device of the presence of E.M. Forster to sort of guide them as storytellers. That was about as vivid as it got <laughs> at, in terms of structure, in terms of outline. And then, of course, I had like the story of Howard's End that I adopted with Toby and Eric and Adam and Leo and Henry and Walter and Margaret. What... Stephen did in the very first workshop is, so I had a lot of disparate lines. It's like, I don't know who says this. I don't know who says that. Sometimes they were unassigned. And, 
And what Stephen did on the first workshop, he, he got eight tables and put them in a big triangle. Uh, no, I'm, this is why I'm a playwright, not a mathematician. <laughs> he, let me do that one more time. He got eight tables and put them in a rectangle. <laughs> I, I barely passed kindergarten. Parallelograms. Yeah. yeah, barely passed kindergarten. And um, he put us, the creatives, on one side of the, the rectangle, and he put the, the cast around it in chairs. And he said, look, if you're just sort of out of the scene, then you just stay in your chair on the outside. If you're in the scene, then you go into that space that the tables have now created, and you play the scene in there. And if you're not really in the scene, but you have a line, you can just stay where you are, and you can raise your hand, you can stand up, you can sit on the table, you can do whatever. And, you know, what I'm describing to you is essentially how the play is staged. Um, It is a a big rectangle, and the actors are on three sides of it, and us, the audience, making up the, the fourth side of the rectangle. And What's amazing to me now, having know, know this production as well as I do know it, is from the very first workshop, Stephen effectively knew what he wanted to do with it. Yeah. And so throughout the workshops, um, what we did was started to play with the text in terms of how it became a shared storytelling document. Mm. Um, there used to be a lot of speeches in the play, a lot more speeches in the play, that now are choral pieces. The best example I can give you is the scene in Act 5, which is Part 2, Act 2, mm-hmm. where Leo is... Um, living on the streets, he's sort of in dire straits, he's addicted to meth, he's selling his body for drugs, and he steals a jar of peanut butter. Mm. Um, and that originally was a speech for Leo, like three-page speech for Leo. And Stephen looked at that in, in whatever workshop we were doing it, and he said, I don't believe that he's capable of giving a speech that erudite at this place in his where his mental state is. And I was like, quite right, fair point. What should we do? And he goes, let me see that. And he took the paper and he took the pen and he just started like crossing, like de- delineating lines. And he just like did, he went through the whole thing. He we'd, like The actors just like took a break and like for 10 minutes, Stephen went through the entire speech. And we got, we reconvened the actors and the guy there placed the table and he goes, all right, so young man two, take this line. Young man seven, take this line. And he just went through the entire speech. Leo, take this section. Da, 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 da. And suddenly he had taken the speech and turned it into a choral piece. Mm. And it was them talking to him yeah. and making the action happen. And, and so then what I would be able to do as a result of these workshops is once I knew the rules of the game as, that, as were starting to be established by Stephen, I could then write the rules of the game based on what I know he wants. So mm. I couldn't write... What I couldn't do is what you see in the play is write that in a first draft. Right. All that choral stuff, all that interaction, the pinging and ponging across the tabletop, yeah. couldn't do that on my own. Once I knew the rules that Stephen established, I could then go off and, okay, I know what I can do. I can do. Give this person to that line, this person to this line. And then the other trick that we learned is in, um, in production, I think, yeah, it was in production, is once we knew where everyone was seated, uh, if, if you paid close attention to the play, you will notice that no one ever had a line after someone they were sitting next to. It always leaped, it always leapt across the table. And so what Stephen, Stephen also did was kept the energy going. Stage left to stage right, to the center, to the back, back center, to the corner, corner. Like it was like a pool game. Yeah. Like, you know, the balls yeah. were going everywhere. And what would happen was if there were rewrites, that all got screwed up. And then we had to reassign the lines. Yeah. And then they might get screwed up again by a certain rewrite <laughs> because then suddenly you're sitting next to me and I got a line, you got a line. Well, you can't, we can't do that. So you got to give your line to him. Oh, no, that screws that up. <laughs> and so we were in the first production, especially, but all the way up through the Broadway production, we were constantly reassigning these lines of dialogue, these mm-hmm. lines of narration to the, to the lads. And what they quickly had to discover was they just had to learn the whole play. Yeah. They had to learn every <laughs> bit of choral work. And they do, they all know it. If you, if you sat one of the guys who's, who was in the, and I bet, you know, um, long after the show is closed, you could probably get uh, yeah. them to sit down and like do it all because they have to. And those rare, and what's the great part about it is in those rare instances, and it happens every now and again because they're human beings, somebody drops a line someone will be able to pick it up. Mm. And, so and do they know to pick it up from from They will often the, do that, right, yes. Right, they I have seen it happen. Across they will, they will yeah. actually ping pong and they will catch and it. It's, it's an astonishing The yeah. thing, and, and that is all that Stephen's, that Stephen's staging, the idea. And I have to say that it is the greatest compliment a director could ever pay a writer is the way this play is staged. Mm. Because there is there was no set. There was no scenery. There was a set, but no scenery. There are just bodies on a stage barefoot uh, in front of a black void. And so all you have 
all the audience can do is listen. And one of the things that I always, always found amazing about that production is that it, it is the closest an approximation to the act of reading that you have, I've ever seen as an audience member because there's nothing to look at, because all you can engage in with the, oh, the way you primarily engage with the plays with your ears rather than your eyes you create the scenery yourself exactly as you do when you read a novel. You are the scenic designer for your own production of the play. And, you know, when it came to the house that, that, that we use at, the, at certain points of the play, when I wrote the play, if you read the, the Faber edition, the, those original stage directions that I have, I described the house. I described, like, I, I needed to create some magic on the page so when people read it, they understand that a magical thing has happened. Uh, and I always sort of intended, okay, minimalistic production. Suddenly, boom, there's a house. Yeah. And Stephen and Bob Crowley sat me down one day, and I think at the last workshop, and they said, so here's the deal, babe. There's not going to be a house. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean there's not going to be a house? Limitations. Like, limitations, right? <laughs> and, 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 and Stephen's like, look, we can build a house if you want. We can do the whole thing, a full three-story house with, like, you know, detail, details. And you know what's going to happen? The thing's going to open. It's going to creak and groan and make noise because it's been fireproofed within an inch of its life and it's going to groan its way downstage. It's going to be the ugliest sounding thing you've ever seen in your life. (laughs) And the other thing is going to happen is that because we have spent the entire first play describing the play, everyone in the audience has their own idea of what the house looks like. And if you show them a very literal house, you've got a thousand people disappointed. The only, he said to me, he goes, the only person who will not be disappointed is Matthew Lopez. (laughs) And of course they were right. And in that first work, that first uh, preview in London, which was one of the most terrifying and magical nights of my life, you open that doll's house, that slider opens up and the doll's house is revealed. And the magic isn't the magic of realism. The magic is the magic of a conjuring of a spirit of a house rather than an actual house. And it remains in the spirit world uh, where that house belongs. Hmm. Well, it's amazing. I mean, that, that impulse, that insight to, to have the experience of seeing the play mimic the experience of reading a book, I think is, is so brilliant and, and um, underappreciated in terms of, because it just happens, right? You take it for granted after seeing the play that you've been in this world where you're imagining everything. I mean, I, I, I can summon in my mind Eric's apartment. I know mm-hmm. exactly what it looks like. I know the color on the wall. I know the furniture. I can see it. Yeah, and it looks exactly the opposite of right. what the person sitting next yes. to you look like, yes, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and you know, and Stephen and Bob even said to that in, in explaining to me the minimalist approach to the production, which mm. I was totally cool with. You know, as lo- I, at that point, I was like, as long as you give me my house, <laughs> we can do it in the lobby of the theater. As far right. as I'm concerned. Um, <laughs> But it's also like he, Stephen was like, you just get these realistic sets trucking on and trucking off, you're dead. Um, and so, yeah, and it's better for you to imagine Eric's apartment. It's better for you to imagine um, what Henry's uh, townhouse in the West Village looks like. Yeah. It 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 it, um, it engages the audience's imagination. Well, and- I would say all that weight lifted off of it. You know, if you if you take the weight of a heavy set and you take the wet weight of all that sort of literal stuff, it allows the audience to listen to the words yeah, and to experience and that energy a, to fill the right space in too. a way that yeah. they wouldn't. And I have never in my entire career have an audience listen as carefully to a play as I have with this one, which is, of course, of all my plays, is the one that you want that to happen. <laughs> and and it is it is because there's no there's nothing to look at. Yeah. I, I the thing that boggled my mind is a tiny thing, but it's always. It always strikes me. There's a, an offstage character named Tom Durrell who's the director of Toby's play, Tom. And he's mentioned, he's mentioned occasionally, but not like overly mentioned, not the way that Henry is before he makes his first entrance, for example. And when we get to that scene in Act 3 when Adam tells Toby he's dating Tom, and I swear to you, in any other play that I would have written with a, with a, with a realistic set, you would have gone in the audience, who's Tom? <laughs> Remind me who's Tom again. I don't remember who's Tom. Do we meet Tom? Is he the guy who's, I don't know. 
And from the very beginning of this production, the very first preview of the Young Vic to the to the very last performance on Broadway, we get to that moment. Um, Tom and I are kind of dating. The entire audience goes, "Oh!" And that it always astounds me because audiences. Now, this is a truth that most playwrights will learn in their career. Audiences need to be reminded of who someone is over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. If you look at any 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 well written, any smartly crafted play, it's. Hey Steve. Hey Angela. Right. So Angela, how are you? Well, Steve, I like, and it's just like that's not how people actually talk. But right. if you really, if you want your audience to remember the characters' names, you're gonna have to do that. But Tom Durrell is not a character we spend a lot of time yeah. on, and yet nightly we get to that moment in the play, yeah. they know exactly who he is, and they know exactly why this is a bad thing that's about to happen. And it, it is astonishing to me when that happens. Wow. People can be taught. They can. You, yes, they, they can. Wonder of wonders. Yeah, right. yeah. All well, it takes is no set, no shoes. <laughs> well, that's a question I have for oh, you. Oh, right. Uh, we, well, I mean, you did bring it up, but talk to me about the no shoes. Okay, well, now that the show has closed, I think we can go ahead and divulge <laughs> the secret, which, of course, is that I, um, I've been told, I don't actively engage in, like, reading, like, Posts and things like that. It's just yeah. it's a very route smart. Hole. It's a route yeah. hole. I don't want to. Twitter go down. is a horrible place. I, d- I don't yeah. want to go down. And and you know actually philosophically, I I mean I know I ha- I have friends who who go instantly to Twitter as soon as the first preview comes down and the chat pours. I'm like no, yeah. not for me yeah. because for me I think that the experiment is in the audience every night. That's my laboratory. And in order for the experiment to really be valuable. Um, I need to not be privy to individual opinions. You know, uh, before the advent of Twitter, you'd come to see my play and you would then leave and you go have a drink with your friend or you're on the subway and you're talking with your friend or your spouse uh, you, over breakfast the next morning. You're talking about the play and you have the exact same opinions at drinks, at dinner, at breakfast the next day as you might post on Twitter. The only difference is I'm not privy to those opinions at the mm-hmm. breakfast table. I'm not privy to those opinions over drinks. And that's as it should be. Mm-hmm. Because the opinion that matters to me is the collective opinion in the auditorium on any given night. Because one of the things that um, uh, John Tollins, uh, the writer of um, Buyer and Seller, great, great guy, said to me, he goes, individual audience members are often wrong, but an audience is always right, yeah. and so I don't engage in that because I, I it'll it'll fuck up the experiment. It'll yeah. it'll it'll um, add a kind of contagion to the to the laboratory. Um, when the show is over, the experiment has done for the night. We recalibrate and we go in the next night at, and into a, another clean laboratory and we start again. So with the the shoes, <laughs> I I was. I was told that there's a lot of like talk about what does it signify, and yeah. I've heard some really great things. I've heard it's about innocence. I've heard it's about connection to the earth. I've heard uh, all manner of, of of really exciting, fun, and imaginative theories. But I'm, I will tell you now, <laughs> officially, what the no shoes signifies. It signifies fast costume changes. <laughs> If you have to take off limitations. shoes and socks, limitations, <laughs> yes. exactly. If you have to take off shoes and socks, you cannot do as many costume changes as we do in the show. Yeah. I am so sorry to break everyone's heart <laughs> that it isn't anything more poetic right. and philosophical yeah. than that. Or but, fetishist. Or fetishistic well, sure. than that. Yeah. Now, what the thing is, is that Steve, they were looking at the costume design, and Bob Crowley, who designed also the costumes, mm-hmm. is like then, and Steven's like, well, it's just, we're going to be a barefoot play. It's the only way we're going to do all these costume changes. It makes the costume changes a lickety split. Yeah, yeah. And so then what Steven did was that he went and says, okay, so then let's put a little bit of meaning onto this. Right. And so what he started to play with is like, okay, then who does wear shoes? Right. And that because suddenly think, that becomes very meaningful. That, right? Then yeah. it becomes very meaningful. It. And yeah. I think that, again, is just like the great example of what a, what a fucking genius that man is <laughs> because he just took a very practical decision, which is to say if nobody's wearing any shoes and socks, the costume changes could go a lot faster. And he, you, he turned that into an artistic decision mm-hmm. eventually. Once he realized that he... So, okay, so if no, in a world in which there are no shoes and socks, the person who enters in shoes and socks... Is somebody somebody worth paying attention to? Right. So Morgan is in shoes and socks. Henry's in shoes and socks. When um, when Eric marries Henry, he puts on shoes and socks. What does it mean? Costume changes. But <laughs> the experience of watching it in the theater it adds to the sort of the mystery of the play, yeah. to the to the to the magic of the play yeah. in some ways. 
but it's, it's about how to deal with limitations. Some of the most um, striking and I think important questions um, that the play asks uh, appear early on um, in that, that scene um, when they're having brunch. And Eric says to his group of friends, um, you know, who are we and who will we become? Um, and he asks, you know, very pointedly, what does it mean now to be a gay man? Uh, and I love that uh, the character Tristan almost immediately says, uh, well, there's as many answers to that question as there are gay men to ask it. Um, and it makes me think about some of the response that I've seen to the play um, from folks who perhaps didn't see themselves in the play. And, and I'm wondering, you know, for me as a, as a 30-something white gay man, the play very much resonated with me. I, I had no, you know, no distance from it. I could easily imagine myself um, and my friends having these conversations. And frankly, I had, a, I had a friendship with an older gay man, Dick Leish, who was uh, mm-hmm. you know, a, a pioneer and um, led the sip in at Julius before Stonewall. And you know that brief, because he passed away, but that brief interaction that I had with him over the final years of his life really you know, sort of shaped my perspective of you know, intergenerational relationships and the history of it all. But I'm wondering, back to my, my point just a minute ago, um, what would you say to someone who, who had that reaction, who said, you know, this play, um, you know, it, I didn't see myself in it? Gay culture is not a monolith. Mm. We are comprised of individual citizens, individual people. I could never attempt to speak for everyone, if you speak to every experience, that is just simply not possible mm. in any work of art. You'd need a thousand hours and even then it would right. be insufficient. <laughs> yeah. um, no one work of art can ever do that, which is why we need a thousand hours of right. individual pieces of art, t- right. 20,000 hours, 100,000 yeah. hours, endless hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the, I'll be honest with you, I think one of the disservices that was done the play inadvertently early on in the, the way people wrote about it was to actually say that it was some sort of a definitive document. Mm. It's never my intention to write yeah. a definitive document. I, I wanted to write a play. <laughs> I, I, I think if I set out to say I was writing some grand statement right. um, that would um, speak for and speak to and reflect every experience of the queer community, I would have failed and I would have wasted everyone's time. Yeah. Um, it also probably it, wouldn't be very interesting. It to probably see. wouldn't be very interesting. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and so I, I don't know what to say to that other than I wrote the truth as I have lived it and the truth as I have experienced it. I have spent a life as, as a gay Puerto Rican man accessing works that I could not perhaps directly see myself in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not in Angels in America, and yet I watch that play, I read that play, and I find great communion with it. Yeah. I, I'm not really in most of the works of Terrence McNally, and yet that his work has spoken to me. Mm-hmm. I'm not in Fun Home, and yet watching that musical... I felt like I was home. Uh, And so I don't think that it is possible. And therefore, I do think it is unfair to ask any artist to speak for everyone. Mm -hmm. I think it is fair to ask an artist to speak honestly from their own experience. And then I do think it is the responsibility of the audience, as I have myself done as an audience member throughout my life, to find communion and commonality with, with the world that I'm being shown. Mm. I, it's the same response that I have to the work of August Wilson. I go to the work of August Wilson and I'm, I'm not there, and yet I am. Mm-hmm. I think, look, if I'm going to be perfectly frank, I understand the desire for that in this play in particular. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little unfair to me to say, oh, well, I don't see myself in August Wilson because, you know, the fact is is that I bet there are a lot of African-Americans who also don't see themselves in August Wilson. And I can't speak to that because that's not my experience. What I will say is that I can't write 
any more honestly than I did in the inheritance. And I hope, if there's any hope that I have from this experience, is that people read and access the play and it inspires them to write their own story. And that is how we find ourselves reflected directly in art um, by making more art, not insisting that any one piece of art does everything for us. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing all the works that are written by people who hate the inheritance, <laughs> who is a result of watching the inheritance. That is a valid expression of your own um, perspectives, and I, I can't wait to see those plays too. Um, I think if there's anything that I wish weren't being said about the inheritance is that it was speaking grandly and generationally uh, in a void and filling some sort of a void that was left untended because that's just simply not true. There have been works of great works of queer dramatic literature being written annually. Um, Mine has gotten a lot of attention and I'm grateful for that. Um, uh, but it, it, it neglects so much that has come in the 25 years since, um, since Angels in America, which is, of course, the play it always gets yeah. compared to. Yeah. Um, it, ignores, it ignores so much. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. I know it's you know, somewhat of a difficult question because as, as a playwright, you're very vulnerable, and I understand that you know, it can be hard to, you know, sort of process all that. But I, I'm grateful to you for saying what you said and, and saying it as, uh, as well as you did because, um, because it's something that I, in my own reaction, you know, to others' criticism of the play have, have really taken umbrage with and, and, and been a little disappointed in the sort of myopic way that some people have, have, have responded my to. My attitude is that everyone's entitled to their opinion. Oh, sure, of and, course, of course. Um, you know, again, it's 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 unfair to expect that a play um, is liked by everybody. Right. It's unfair to expect. I mean, there's no such thing as 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 there's truly no such thing as universal praise. You yeah. can find yeah. you can find something that is um, objectionable to somebody, and yeah. and it, quite honestly, the 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 um, the world we live in is different than than the world that a lot of those other works were debuted in, and mm. I think that. If 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 those works, um, you know, I was talking to Lena Waithe a few weeks ago, and she's been doing a lot of research into Lorraine Hansberry and 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 the you know the response to Raisin in the Sun, which also premiered at the Barrymore Theater, <laughs> wasn't universal in the black community. And um, you know, if Twitter had been around then, I think that that she might have gotten an earful. Yeah. Um, it's it's how I think that on the one hand, it's very healthy for people to begin to engage with a piece of art in all in all ways and in all in all manners. And I I I everybody wants universal praise, but I would <laughs> I'd be very suspect of it. Yeah. I think that there is something valuable in some ways to to questioning things and to um, what I what I hope people would have the ability to do and the willingness to do is to engage with the play that I wrote on the terms that I wrote it. And sometimes I think that's missing from the conversation about about art uh, in the present, we we've, we sometimes seem to ignore what the artist is trying to say and instead uh, wish and sometimes insist that the artists say what we would like to them to have said. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only answer to that is more art. I did have the very unique experience of sitting behind Hillary Clinton while watching Yes, the you did. And you were sitting across from her. Yes, I did. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could, could share, I'm putting you on the spot here, um, you know, what it was like to, to write a play that incorporates, you know, real events, right? Mm-hmm. And, and historical, now, you know, the, the history of that election, which figures into the play, and couldn't have been there in the first draft because Not you were all. writing it as yes. it was happening. Um, and then to experience the play with, one of the people mentioned in mm-hmm. the play in the audience. What was that like for you? Well, when I found out that she was coming, I re- reached out to our company manager and I said, yeah. I'm buying a house seat <laughs> and you will put me in the, in, on the aisle right across from her because I have to watch her watch the play. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just an exciting thing in, in general. I mean, yeah. if she had come to see Whipping Man, it would have been an exciting right, of thing. Course. But this play, of course, in particular, which deals with the election of 2016 and in particular the impact of her loss mm. in the race. Um, and 
when I, yes, you're right. I wrote the first draft before, I wrote the first draft in the spring of 2015. Um, and then after the election in 2016, uh, early in December, I had a phone call with Stephen. And he said to me something that I had just sort of been thinking about, but sort of like praying I didn't really believe it. Uh, and then he went and said it, which is, he goes, love, I got to tell you. I can't do an English accent to save my <laughs> life. That was my English accent. I, love, I got to tell you, you're going to have to go back and rewrite the motherfucker. And I was like, I know, I know. He goes, and he was right. And I knew, I knew he was right. And I knew he was right before he even had the conversation that a play about history couldn't be a historical to the time in which it was mm. actually presented. And mm. so, yeah, I went back and I rewrote the motherfucker. <laughs> and it was, um, I mean, it was the worst thing to have happened to America, uh, but it, the the lemonade was that it it was it was it was helpful for for the play. Uh, mm. It was the right decision to do because it it put it put everything in a, in a very clear perspective of history mm. and history happening right now. So watching her watch the play mm -hmm. was fascinating. It was exciting. It was. Um, it was deliriously fun. <laughs> um, I loved what watching what she found funny in the play. Mm. And then when we got closer and closer to those scenes, what was meaningful to me actually was the night that she was there, the audience was aware of her presence by the second act, which is when we really get into the election. And there was a line that one of the actors says, you know, these are the things that we have you know, the chance to make meaningful progress on once Clinton is elected. And for the first time ever, that line got a big round of applause in the audience. Mm. She stopped the show cold. And it was very funny because she was sort of like, you know, taking it with very good good cheer. And she kind of, she even looked over at me and she's like, really? And I was like, yeah, yeah well, um, did you expect you to come? And um, then the line right after it was Walters. And he says, are you certain she's going to win? And then suddenly, because of that round of applause, the theater got deadly silent. And then he said, what happens if you're wrong? And I looked over at her. And she, I watched her just shaking her head, like, yep. Like, she didn't take pleasure in the round of applause at that, but she seemed to appreciate Walter's question. Mm. Um, and that was actually very meaningful to me. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's one of the great privileges and pleasures of, of, of my life that I got to watch her watch the play. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's um, it's been it's been exciting. I will say too that um, the great privilege and privilege, pleasure of this has been sharing it with everyone. Mm. Um, Hillary Clinton is is <laughs> one of the most exciting people to share it with. Sure, but thousands but of people, thousands of people yeah. who, you know, I wrote this play believing that I was alone and singular in in my experience and my pain. I think I wrote this in part to expel the pain. Well, I always say to people that I, being a gay man was both the most joyful and the most traumatic experience of my life. And I needed to write about the trauma in order to live in joy. And I did it thinking that I was alone in the world. And the experience of sharing this play with people has proven how wrong I am. And again, you know, going back to an earlier question of you, I wrote my experience as I lived it. And I experienced it. And as my friends lived it and experienced it, and what sharing it with the world has shown me is that these are experiences that have been shared by many. Mm. And I've, I have unexpectedly given voice to people who have not had their experience shared. And that for me has been such a tremendous gift to be shown that I am not alone in the world, to be shown that I am not even alone in, in my pain. Mm. Um, it has healed me. Working on this play has healed me. And it has made me feel much more connected to the community to which I belong. Wow. Well, thank you so much for, for writing it and for being so generous with your time. There's one final question we ask everyone who comes on the show. Yes. Jamie's going to ask it. I think you should ask it, Rob. Well, I really do. <laughs> well, we always ask, what was that show or experience early in your life that made you want to work in the theater? It was the very first show I ever saw. I was five years old. Uh, my parents took me to see Sandy Duncan and Peter Pan on Broadway, and I was transfixed and mesmerized by it. To me, it it was everything that I believe theater is. It's magic. It's um, it's transporting. It's fun. It's dangerous. Um, it's hopeful. 
Uh, and then three days later, they took me to see my Aunt Priscilla play Harpo Marx in A Day in Hollywood and Night in the Ukraine. And what that taught me was that theater was something that I could do because it was something that someone in my family did. And so those two things, at the age of five, set the course for the rest of my life. Wow. Well, we're very glad that your parents <laughs> took you to those I am very shows. grateful, too. I mean, they could have taken me to see, like, Raging Bull instead, right, exactly. because it was out at the time, too. I'm glad they didn't do that. And then you would have written very different plays. Or I've been a boxer or something. I <laughs> right, don't know. Exactly. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's my Jamie here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. At this difficult time, please consider making a donation to the Actors Fund at actorsfund.org. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Charles Van Kirk. Find us online anytime at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to tune in next week. Stay well and be safe. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.